0: For Tuesday, December 22nd, 2020, this is Did You Wash Your Hands? We're a podcast from WABE answering the questions everyone's asking during the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm health reporter Sam Whitehead. Today, we've learned a lot this year about the group's hardest hit by COVID-19, about some ways to sort through the barrage of information being dug up about this novel virus even about how to live our lives safely while not cutting ourselves off from the rest of the world. As we approach the end of 2020, we're revisiting some of the conversations that touch on what COVID-19 has shown us about our world and how we interact with it. That's next.
2: Support for WABE's local coverage on maternal health and mortality comes from Georgia Health Initiative, whose mission is to inspire and promote collective action that advances health equity for all Georgians. Learn more at georgiahealthinitiative.org.
0: Even in the early days of the pandemic, it was clear that some people were being hit harder by COVID-19 than others, especially members of minority groups. Dr. Kamara Phyllis Jones, an epidemiologist with the Morehouse School of Medicine and Emory's Rollins School of Public Health, spoke with me about that topic back in May. We started by discussing recent data from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in Atlanta, showing members of minority groups were more likely to get sick and die from COVID-19. Just to start, reflect on that a little bit if you can
1: for me. In December of 2019, There was no human on this planet that was immune to the virus. And so the early talk was that this was going to be an equal opportunity infector. And in fact, it's true that if opportunity were equally distributed and if exposure to risk were equally distributed, then there really would have been no way that we could slice and dice the population and find any group differences in terms of the proportions of people who were infected or the proportions of people dying. So what this infection has done is basically ripped the sheets off of the basic inequity, structured inequity by race in this country. So long story short, COVID-19 has just exposed structural racism in this nation.
0: If we know that this disproportionately affects people of color, how do you message that without having people come to the conclusion that if they're not one of those groups, it's, it's not something they need to worry about?
1: Well, first of all, it is disproportionately affecting those groups, but it is not only affecting those groups. And that's clear to the many, many white families that have been affected by having loved ones die. So the disproportionate message is an important one because we need to provide resources according to need, but it's not solely those populations. And I think that that is the message that has been lost by the general population. And also, although we in medicine and we in public health know that there are no biological differences between so-called races, that race is a social category, it's a social classification of people. Still in this country, there is a highly prevalent idea that there are some kind of biological differences between people of color and people who are living as white. There are not. But those differences make people feel, for example, that if black and brown and indigenous people were the canaries in the mine and they died, People might say, oh, but I'm a parrot. <laughs> you know, I, I'm going to just march into that mine. But the virus is going to, until we are immune with a vaccine, the virus is going to keep finding its way into any susceptible person.
0: I'm wondering too what you make of social factors here. Do those kinds
1: of factors play a role here? It's the only role. <laughs> so it's not, it's not race. So when I talked about people of color being more likely to be infected. I said it was because we're more exposed because we are occupationally segregated. The residential segregation by race turns into occupational segregation by race. So you have more people of color on the front lines as orderlies or home health aides or bus drivers, and then in terms of the communities in which we live, if we are infected, often returning to homes that are small homes, maybe with many people in the home, many multi-generational families, and therefore infecting others in the home, or even if it's not in your home, in communities where a lot of other people are infected, where the actual prevalence of the infection is higher, so you are more likely to encounter somebody who is infected.
0: We're here to talk about kind of the role that race plays here. What are your thoughts about about that when we think about the future of this pandemic and how it plays out?
1: Well, I'm hoping that this nation will not be be complacent, understanding that we are all human and that we are all in fact in this together. And even though people of color are being disproportionately impacted and impacted early being impacted first, that we actually really, 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 really are all in this together. I hope that that kind of ethos will prevail. Otherwise, it could be quite bleak. Dr. Kamara Phyllis
0: Jones is an epidemiologist from the Morehouse School of Medicine and Emory's Rollins School of Public Health. We spoke back in May about the outsized impact the pandemic was having on members of minority groups, an outsized impact that's only become more obvious as time has gone on. Those racial and ethnic disparities are just one thing that researchers have revealed about this novel virus in 2020. There's been so much we've learned through scientific study, but not all of it has been rigorously peer-reviewed. That's something I discussed back in June with Ivan Aransky, co-founder of the blog Retraction Watch. that tracks articles that get pulled out of scientific journals and has been tracking sketchy studies on the coronavirus. Our conversation started by talking about a then-recently retracted study that said masks were not effective
2: in stopping the spread of the virus. So a group of researchers was studying whether or not wearing a mask would actually protect you or someone near you. If you were infected with COVID, would you be spreading it? And there were a couple of red flags right from the get-go in terms of this study being published. And one was that there were only four people in it. Uh, And the other was that They seem to have misunderstood sort of the lowest level that this test they were using could detect of a virus, and the fact that once you were below that level, you didn't really know what it meant, but it didn't necessarily mean that there wasn't any virus there. So it was published, this study, in early April, uh, and then it was retracted uh, in early June. And so in the meantime, it got an awful lot of attention. It was also written about by dozens and dozens of news outlets. So this is a you know good example of what has been happening, which is that journals are so eager to publish studies so quickly that often the QA, the quality assurance, is getting missed.
0: How is that retraction communicated? And is it safe to think that everyone who did cover it came back later and said, well, actually, it maybe didn't hold a lot of water?
2: Well, it's certainly best practice to give a retraction at least as much oxygen as you gave the original paper. But in practice, that rarely happens. You know, I think it behooves journals and it behooves universities that put out press releases about studies to make sure that they put out press releases about the retractions. I I wouldn't count on individual reporters or, or policymakers learning about retractions because, frankly, journals don't do a very good job of getting the word out.
0: That is a great transition, I think, to talking about uh, preprints. These are studies that have not undergone peer review. What is the real issue here with a preprint?
2: All of a sudden, everyone's talking about preprints because the two major preprint servers that would be relevant to COVID research, BioArchive, which is life science research, MedArchive, which is clinical research, they didn't exist during the Ebola outbreak of 2014 2015. What I would not want anyone to take away is that preprint servers are automatically unreliable, whereas peer reviewed journals are automatically reliable.
0: How can the the public, how can researchers, how can journalists balance out this desire I think we all have for this situation to be over (laughs) with this healthy awareness of the fact that quick solutions aren't always readily available?
2: I guess it depends, Sam, on how often you want to be disappointed and how often you want to have false hope. And I think that it can't start during the pandemic. We can't suddenly start educating people about how science works during a pandemic. I don't think we can educate people at all about anything when they're in the middle of an understandable existential crisis. So when we go back to quote unquote normal, whatever that is, it isn't suddenly going to be okay to go back to reporting on single studies of coffee or red wine or chocolate and say, well, it doesn't really matter because it's not a pandemic anymore. Actually it does because if you, make people think that every single study is important, then during a pandemic, they're going to think that every single study is important. That's on us. It's on scientists. It's on journalists. It's on educators to actually inform people in advance of how this all works and not try and do it during a pandemic because I just don't think that's realistic.
0: Ivan Oransky is co-founder of the blog Retraction Watch, We spoke back in June about some of the sketchy science being released about the coronavirus. His blog has counted dozens of COVID-19-related studies that have been retracted since the start of the pandemic. This year has also been one in which many of us have had to think about risk in ways we never have before. The risks of going to the store, the risks of travel, the risks of attending gatherings. It turns out the HIV epidemic can teach us a lot about how to handle the coronavirus, especially how to carry on our lives while minimizing risk. So wrote Dr. Eric Kutcher in the Journal of the American Medical Association's Health Forum earlier this year. He's an internal medicine resident at New York University. We spoke back in July. What have we really learned from the decades of work that the medical community has done with HIV that you think is really applicable to COVID?
3: Over the past 30 years of the HIV uh, epidemic, we've learned that people tend to not be very good at abstaining from all activity that brings them meaning and purpose, and instead um, that the best public health strategies focus on trying to reduce the risk itself that's associated with disease, trying to figure out how to live a new normal, how to continue doing behaviors that bring us satisfaction and bring us purpose while also staying safe. And I think from a public health messaging perspective, what we've learned is that people get really tired of being told that they can't do things that make them happy, um, and that we need to figure out ways to you know, meet people where they are and try and make sure that they understand risks and do everything they can to decrease those risks while you know, still having some degree of happiness.
0: It's interesting, this, this idea of, of, of abstinence, because we hear it so much when we think about sexual behavior, but really what we've kind of done as a society is abstained from our everyday lives over the last few months in very large ways to stop the spread of this virus.
3: You know, I think there's a time and a place for abstinence. And I think that at the beginning of the pandemic in New York, abstinence was 100% necessary. And I'll argue that abstinence is probably going to be necessary again, too. But that when numbers come to a place where we are able to seek important, meaningful interaction without risking the entire health system collapsing, I think that's where individuals can choose to take a harm reduction approach to COVID. Just basically explain to me what harm reduction is. Harm reduction is a theory that abolishes the all-or-nothing approach to risk and disease and acknowledges that absence only is really not possible for everyone. Um, you know, the approach was originally uh, developed during the HIV epidemic, particularly for those with injection drug use, um, and looked at trying to answer a, a simple question, which is, in a world where our behaviors put us at risk for illness, how can we get the most satisfaction while minimizing our risk of disease acquisition or of spread? I think for COVID, the question of, you know, what interventions decrease your risk and how can we reduce harm while still being around others? Um is a little bit more complicated and nuanced. And I think the public health messaging that we've received is, you know, be six feet apart from each other, wear a face mask, try and stay outdoors. And I think that's generally right. Um But I think that there are other components from harm reduction that fit nicely in, aside from the actual interventions themselves, that are important to think about when you're talking about uh, how to stay safe during COVID.
0: What have we learned from the HIV epidemic about risk and and really how to get people thinking about this in a smart way? Because for a lot of people, they haven't had to think about these kinds of risks before. So I think the unfortunate
3: reality is that the disease is spread and it's coming to all communities across the country, and we're going to see the risk. So, you know, you're you're talking to me, and I'm here, based in New York, and I've worked in the ICU here for the past six months, on and off. And the COVID-19 virus causes really bad disease. It causes death and um, and morbidity and mortality among people that I've seen directly. And I think people often, unfortunately, tend to not believe things that aren't in their backyard. And I wish that we could you know, sound the alarms and, and share the information so that people didn't have to see it in their backyard. But what we see right now is that it, it's spreading throughout the country. And so unfortunately, what I think that means is that people who were denying that COVID-19 was a problem are soon going to see it closer to where they are, where it's going to be harder for them
0: to deny that as a complete risk itself. Dr. Eric Kutcher is an internal medicine resident at New York University. We spoke back in July. Did You Wash Your Hands? is a production of 90.1 WABE Atlanta, where ATL meets NPR. WABE's managing editor is Alex Helmick. Scott Wolfel is chief content officer. You can reach us at washyourhands at wabe.org. You can find all our episodes in your favorite podcast app, that's also where you can leave us a rating and a review. That really helps other people find the show. And you can find more stories on the coronavirus pandemic at wabe.org coronavirus. If you haven't recently, now might be a good time to go wash your hands. I'm Sam Whitehead. Thanks for listening.